following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. If you have your Bibles with you, would invite you to turn to Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. As you may know from the last time I preached two Sundays ago, um, that was the, the title of last, what was supposed to be the message last time, which was No Seat at the Table. But that's the title for our message this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 30 in Luke chapter 13. And it reads, <clears throat> He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and you will not be able and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Let's pray. Father, grant to us understanding of this teaching. Grant to us what it means to have a seat at your table. Give us an understanding of what it means to um, be included in that number of invited guests who will be welcomed at your great banquet one day. Open our eyes to understand what you are calling us to, for we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I've been pointing out uh, several times in the course of our study of Luke, uh, Jesus seemed to appear out of nowhere. An uneducated carpenter from the backwoods village of Nazareth. Um... He just appeared out of nowhere to be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, ushering in the start of his public ministry. But despite the fact that he didn't come from the ranks of the religious leaders of Israel, his popularity exploded as he began his public ministry. In fact, crowds would gather so large that they were almost crushing him. And at times, he found that he would have to go into the boat in order to get enough distance to be able to preach and teach to them. The people were drawn not only to the miracles that he performed, but also to the power and authority of his teaching that was unlike any other teaching that they had heard before. And yet the paradox of Jesus' popularity is that despite his enormous popularity, most in Israel didn't accept Jesus' message of repentance and salvation that he came to bring. In other words, enormously popular as a celebrity, but when you really broke it down, not many followers, 
Not many people that really took his teaching at face value and embraced it and accepted and followed it. And as I pointed out on a number of occasions here, Luke chapter 9 verse 51 is really the turning point of the book. When it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, speaking of Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Everything that follows after nine, chapter 9, verse 51, is a record of Jesus' slow but inevitable march to Jerusalem, his final journey to Jerusalem, where he would lay down his life on the cross and die for our sins. And after Luke 9, 51, there's an undeniable change in his tone, in the way that he teaches. There's a, a certain stridency, an urgency, a sharpness to his message as he calls people to obedience, to follow him. In essence, he calls people, get off the fence. Make your decision today. Go from being merely a fan to being a follower of mine if you really say that you believe my teaching. And so Jesus teaches from village to village. And as he's doing that, somebody asks him, are there only going to be a few people who are saved? Now, this is interesting, isn't it? There must have been something in Jesus' teaching that caused this man to get a little worried, to wonder, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, the fact that a Jewish person is even questioning this is remarkable. And the reason is because in those days, all Jews thought that they were going to go to heaven. It was automatic. I mean, you had to be a really, really evil Jew to lose your ticket to heaven. I mean, you did. I mean, you, you had to be heinous, like a serial murderer or something like that to not go to heaven as a Jew. And the reason is because Jews thought that heaven was their birthright because Abraham was their ancestor. Listen, we're the chosen people. We're God's people. Therefore, we are going to be in heaven. Of course, for the Gentiles, it was a very different story. It would be the rare exception for a Gentile to make it into heaven. But as these Jews sat under Jesus' teaching, the realization came that his view of salvation was not the same as the traditional teaching that they've been grown up in all these years in the synagogues from their other religious leaders. As they were listening to what Jesus taught in the gospel, they realized that they say, listen, what he seems to be suggesting is that just because we're a Jew doesn't mean we're automatically granted heaven. What's going on here? In fact, the way Jesus presents it, it makes it sound like not a lot of people are going to be saved. Well, Jesus' response to this man's question is not really one of reassurance, is it? Verses 23 to 24, it says, And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter it and will not be able. Jesus, in essence, describes salvation as a narrow door, seeming to confirm this man's worst fears, arguing that many people will try to find the way to salvation, but at the end of the day, few will find it. Now, that word strive is the same word used to describe an athlete who undergoes extreme training to win an athletic competition. In fact, from the original Greek word that Jesus uses, we get our modern world, agony. The Greek word is it's actually agonizomai. You know, it's, it's agony, agony. Um, 
I want to ask you right here, are there some alarm bells going off in your head right now? Are you getting a little uncomfortable with what you're hearing? Because isn't salvation all about God's grace alone? Isn't that how we are saved? And throughout Luke's gospel, we've seen Jesus attack the Pharisees for teaching us salvation by works, haven't we? Because the other religious leaders create this whole religious system of earning your salvation by the good efforts that you do to earn God's favor so that you could go to heaven. And Jesus categorically preached against that. It's not about what you earn. It's not about your effort, your good works that gets you to heaven. And yet it seems like Jesus is contradicting himself right here when he says, I tell you, make every effort, agonize, strive to get through that narrow door. Because not many people are going to make it in the end. The question is this, what is going on here? What's going on here? In order to understand Jesus' message, we have to read the rest of the passage and unpack it to see what he's really saying. Although it may not be immediately obvious, the picture that Jesus is painting for this man is one of a great wedding uh, of a great banquet that a master of the house hosts for his friends for his go- for his guests it becomes clear that that's the imagery especially when you read the end of this passage um, this imagery would have been very familiar to the jews as a picture of final salvation when all who are saved are gathered up in heaven and are invited to the lord's table to sit at a great feast in his honor. That would have been the very immediately recognizable message of salvation because that imagery is found throughout the Old Testament of a great banquet hall and of people being invited to celebrate salvation with the Lord. But Jesus throws a little twist into this imagery by adding a detail He says, before the festivities get underway, the master comes and he locks the door. And he makes sure that no uninvited guests cannot join. And as the banquet ensues, other people begin showing up. And they begin banging on the door, expecting to join the party. And yet they are turned away by the host. Now it's clear that these Uninvited guests represent those who are not saved. But on what basis does the master reject those who want to join the banquet? You see, the the answer to this question explains everything about Jesus' view of salvation. You see, the master didn't say to these people knocking on the door, these uninvited guests, the unsaved, you, you didn't do enough good in your life to counter the bad. I mean, you, you just didn't earn enough credit in my book to be invited to this party. The master did not say that. Nor did he say, you're not from the right clan. You're not from the right family tree. You're not, you're not from the right pedigree. You're not from the right ethnic group. And so you don't belong at this party like the rest of the people 
that I invited. In fact, the decision to reject these people was based solely and entirely on the fact that they didn't have a relationship with the master, right? Um, Twice he tells them, I don't know where you come from. That's another way of saying, I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. To me, the most disturbing detail in this story is the total surprise and confusion of those who are turned away as uninvited guests. It's clear that these people believe that they belong to this party. And they can't understand why the master refuses them. You, you can hear the sense of disbelief and even indignation in their voice when they hear the rejection of the master. What do you mean you don't know me? Like, how can you even say that? Of course you know me, Jesus. In fact, the first time that the master tells them that he doesn't know who they are, they cite as evidence We've shared a meal together. I mean, this is not the first time we're meeting Jesus. We've actually had a meal together before. And when you came through our village teaching, I was there in the audience. I heard every one of your messages when you preached in my village. How can you say you don't know me? But the master is unswayed by their argument and reaffirms, sorry, I'm going to say it again. I don't know you. I don't really know you. In other words, for those who were locked out of the banquet, there was an illusion of a relationship when in truth, none existed. There was an illusion of a relationship when none existed. Let me see if I could illustrate it like this. Some years back, I was invited to speak at this retreat. And, uh, Since coming to Emmanuel, I've actually made a policy that I generally don't accept speaking engagements now unless I personally know the person. Uh, But this was an exception because this guy had emailed me and said uh, basically that he had been turned on to my sermons by a fellow friend of his and that for years now he'd been listening to my sermons and about just sharing with me the impact that my messages have had on his ministry how do you say no to a guy like that? You know? So I said, okay, I'll come and speak at your retreat. So we had this long drive to the retreat center from the airport where he picked me up. And, you know, it was several hours that we were driving to this retreat center. And along the way, you know, we're just trying to get to know each other because, you know, I don't know this guy at all. And so I'm sharing just these testimonies of my life. And the creepy feeling that started settling in is like he's kind of smiling and everything. And after a while, he's like finishing my sentences because he knows all my stories already. (laughs) And I realized the reason why he knows all my stories is because he's heard just about every sermon I ever preached. And so he knows how many kids I have. He knows my wife's name. He knows like I went to Africa. He knows that I got sick out there. He knows everything about my life. And yet the truth is I don't know this guy, you know? And I think somewhere in the course of that drive to the retreat center, I think he began to feel a little weird about it too because he realized that he felt like he knew me, like we were friends. But as we were driving the car, he realized he doesn't really know me. You know, in in terms of person to person, we don't really know each other. It's weird. There was this illusion of friendship, but there was really no actual relationship there that we had. 
the roles were somewhat reversed when on a trip to California, I was invited to meet this guy named Dallas Willard. Uh, Willard was a philosophy professor at USC. And some of you may know he's a personal hero of mine, okay? Um, He has had a more profound impact on my understanding of the Christian faith than just about any other person, okay? Any other author, at least. And as you know, I probably quote Willard more than I quote any other person. It's hard to hear a sermon of mine without a quote from Willard, and this message will be no different. Um, So a friend of a friend who knew how much I admired Willard said, knew Willard, actually, and said, hey, you know what? I can set up a meeting with him if you want to meet him. And so, you know, he can meet you at like a Starbucks nearby here because he doesn't live that far from where you are right now. Do you want me to set up that meeting? My immediate reaction was, yes, please. Um, But then I thought about it some more, and I realized, like, what would I say to Dallas Willard if I met him at a Starbucks? Um, I'd really be like, I really like your books. (laughs) You're a good writer. (laughs) And then what? I mean, I know nothing about his personal life. And I realized, like, as much as I've internalized Dallas Willard into my heart as a writer, um, I don't actually have any relationship with this guy. And so I saved both of us the awkwardness of that coffee meeting that day. And, and I just said, it's okay. You know, it's all right. I don't, I don't have to meet Willard. This is sort of what I'm getting at here is it's possible to know a lot about Jesus. It's possible to pretty much have grown up in church your entire life and feel like Jesus is a friend. But the question that Jesus would really press upon you is, are we really friends? Is there really anything that we could call a genuine relationship beyond all of the religious trappings of the things we do as Christians? Jesus' story ends with one final detail that's also a bit haunting. When those who realize that they've lost their chance to be part of the great wedding banquet and are locked outside the door uh, realize what's happened to them, Jesus describes that situation as one of horrible weeping and gnashing of teeth. To gnash your teeth literally means to grind your teeth together. Actually, I don't think, do we have any dentists in our church? But if you were a dentist, you you would know that there is this, uh, oh, actually, yeah, we do have a dentist, right? So in our midst, this one of the subconscious reactions to stress is what? To grind your teeth, right? To, To clench your jaw. And so this picture of grinding one's teeth not only conveys a sense of deep sadness, but of deep frustration and regret from the realization of an opportunity that was missed that could never be regained again. Gnashing of teeth, regret, frustration, a lost chance. Um, Let me illustrate this a little bit for you with a couple of brief stories. In 1999, George Bell, who was at that time CEO of Excite.com. Any of you remember Excite? It used to be one of the premier search engines in the day. Was given an offer to purchase Google for a million dollars. 
He laughed at the deal and thought it was way too expensive and declined. Well, founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin came back with a counteroffer and said, fine, we'll sell it to you for $750,000. Bell again rejected the offer saying, you guys, are, you guys are kidding me. There's no way I'm paying $750,000 for your search engine. Today, Google is worth almost $400 billion, okay? <laughs> Weeping and gnashing of teeth, okay? Um, Excite.com is in the dustbins of tech history, right? It, it, actually, I, I try to go to Excite. It still exists. Does anyone here use Excite as your primary search engine? I don't think so, right? Everyone who's an NBA fan knows the story of the 1984 draft, right? It's a legendary draft. Consider one of the greatest drafts in NBA history. Houston Rockets won the coin toss, and for their pick, picked Hakeem the Dream Olajuwon. No surprise there. Would go on to become a Hall of Famer, giving the Rockets back-to-back NBA championships, right? I think it was 2004, 2005. But then Portland Trailblazers <laughs> used their number two pick to draft who? Sam Bowie, right? Um, he was plagued by injuries. So that in the five years that he was with the Trailblazers, he played only 25% of the games, okay, before he was finally traded away. And they lost their opportunity to draft this guy, right? And so the number three pick was Michael Jordan, who pretty much everyone declares to be the greatest player who ever played in the NBA, picked up by the Chicago Bulls. On its list of 100 worst draft picks in all of professional sports history, ESPN lists Portland's draft choice as number one. (laughs) The worst draft pick ever of all time history. This is weeping and gnashing of teeth, okay? This is the, the picture of regret that Jesus is painting, of a sense of a missed opportunity a failed chance, and now the door is shut, and there isn't another chance. Now, I want to say this. The sad truth is that many people live under the illusion of having a relationship with Jesus, when in truth, none actually exists. In other words, you can attend church services regularly, You can sit under biblical teaching regularly. You can even serve the church in all different kind of ways. Go on mission trips. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, does it? In other words, you can perform all of the outward behaviors of a Christian and yet fail to have a trusting friendship with God. And that's frightening. One of the things that I particularly worry about is in our day, the way we've reduced an ongoing, trusting, vital relationship with Jesus to a formula of salvation that typically revolves around getting people to say what we call a sinner's prayer, right? And a sinner's prayer typically looks something like this. 
you know, you encourage that person to pray with you. God, I know that I am a sinner and that I deserve to go to hell. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I now receive him as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's a shortened version of it. Probably many of you have prayed longer prayers than that. I think this whole formula of walking people through a sinner's prayer came out of a desire for certainty so that we can be sure who is saved and who is not. But my fear is that this whole formula of a sinner's prayer can end up giving people a lot of false assurances that they are saved when in truth they may not be. Now listen, I'm guessing that some of you are kind of uncomfortable with what I'm saying right here. And let me explain it a bit. I'm not necessarily saying that it's wrong to walk somebody through a prayer like this who wants to believe, okay? I'm not necessarily saying that that's wrong. In fact, if you genuinely pray a prayer like this, that may be your first steps into salvation and into a relationship with God and into new life. It's very possible. But I think there's a real danger in feeling like just because you said this prayer at one point in your life, that that's it, that's your golden ticket, that that's what it means to cross over from life, from death, into life. And what I'm saying to you is this. This prayer is only meaningful to the extent that what it actually represents is the start of a relationship with God that is ongoing and present and real in your life. In other words, a genuine trusting relationship with Jesus has to go beyond just believing that at some point in my life I said a prayer. And so that prayer is going to get me to heaven when I die. That's not the picture of salvation that Jesus paints in his gospel. Dallas Willard makes an interesting point about what it meant for Abraham to have faith in God and therefore for Abraham to be saved. It's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? You know, how were the Old Testament people saved? if they didn't know about Jesus, right? Um, Willard says this, my friend Willard, (laughs) whom I've never met. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, we are told, Genesis 15, 6. What did Abraham believe that led God to declare or reckon him righteous? Was it that God had arranged payment for his sins? Not at all. The story makes it very clear that Abraham believed God was going to give him a male baby, an heir. And through that baby, a multitude of descendants who had possessed the land promised to him. He trusted God, of course, but it was for things involved in his current existence. In other words, what Willard is saying is this. The Bible tells us that Abraham was declared righteous because he believed in God. But what Willard is asking is, what exactly did he believe about God? Did he believe that Jesus was going to come from the, and die on the cross thousands of years later and all that? We're really not sure of any of those kind of details. In fact, what the book of Genesis says, and even the New Testament passages that follow after says, it wasn't about that at all. Why Abraham was declared righteous and why Abraham was found to be a man of faith was because he believed in the promise that God would give him an heir a male 
who would carry on the family line. He would give him a son. Well, Willard goes on and he says, In the face of such faith, God declared Abraham to be righteous. Does, this, does that mean he declared he would go to heaven when he died? Not precisely that, but certainly that Abraham's sins and failures would not cut him off from God in the present moment and in that going, ongoing relationship in life together. I mean, so what he's saying here is like, so was there any declaration going, Abraham, when you die, you'll be in heaven with me? There's really none of that kind of statement ever being made about Abraham. But he said, surely there was a relationship there. With God and Abraham. Well, Willard presses the point about heaven further. And he says, but would he go to heaven when he died? Of course. What else would God do with such a person? They were friends. A fact made much of in scripture. In fact, it's interesting how often Abraham is called a friend of God. As we are to be friends of Jesus by immersing ourselves in his work. John fifteen five. No friend of God will be in hell. Now, listen. Of course, every person who ever lived on this earth can only be in the presence of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is undeniable. Okay? But the question is this. To what extent did Abraham understand even this mechanism of forgiveness for his sin? How much did he know about the coming Jesus? We're not really clear on that. The question is this. Did Abraham ever say the sinner's prayer? I don't know what kind of prayer he offered for his sin. I don't know. So the question is this. How was Abraham saved? Yes, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Undoubtedly. But here as we see in the Old Testament even, it was by entering into friendship with God. Which was demonstrated by putting his trust in God's promises for his life. Willard again. The issue, so far as the gospel in the gospels is concerned, is whether we are alive to God or dead to him. Do we walk in an interactive relationship with him that constitutes a new kind of life, life from above? The eternal life of which Jesus speaks is not knowledge about God, but an intimate, interactive relationship with him. In other words, what I'm simply asking you this morning is this. Has God moved in your life from being a mere idea that you believe in to a person in whom you trust and have a relationship with? This is the most important question that I am asking you this morning. Do you study God like you study a subject at school, in other words? Or do you relate to God like you relate to a person? In other words, are you alive to him? And is, is he alive and real to you? One of the most important truths found in the Bible is that our God is a God who desires a relationship with us. John chapter 3, 16, arguably the most famous verse in the entirety of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is a statement of God's heart in wanting a relationship of love with us. It is out of that love 
that he gave his only son. Listen, by having faith in God doesn't mean you're never going to fail. By having faith in God, it, means, it doesn't mean you're going to get it right every time. Abraham didn't, did he? God knows Abraham tripped and fell and failed many times. And yet, out of this trusting relationship with God, out of this faith that he had, he became a friend of God and walked with him by faith, trusting in him daily. One of the most important demonstrations of a relationship with God, I would argue, is prayer. Because in prayer, we move from talking about God to talking to him. In other words, I think prayer is the language of relationships. And I suspect hearing that may make some of you feel pretty discouraged. Because if our relationship was judged solely on the basis of our prayer life, how would you fare? I can think of at least half a dozen other activities that I wish God would put first before he uses my prayer life to evaluate my relationship with him. But in truth, I think probably prayer is the best indicator. It's probably the most honest indicator of how real our relationship is with God. You know, because when you do missions and when you get all activist about it, I mean, there's, there's a certain adrenaline rush from just the activism itself, isn't there? I mean, there's a, a lot of mixed motives there in what can drive activism and being missional, you know? I mean, even teaching and sitting under preaching like this, I mean, it's all very academic, isn't it? There's something stimulating about being given a new idea to play around with in your mind. And the thing is, you can do a lot of churchy activities utterly devoid of an actual relationship with God. But I think when it comes to prayer, it really exposes the degree to which we want to have a relationship with Him. Because in prayer, it is about the raw communication that we have with our Heavenly Father. Um, If you and your spouse came to me for counseling and told me that basically you never talk to each other anymore, I would say that there's major problems in your marriage, wouldn't you? If basically the level of communication is just one-word responses and grunts, then I'd say your marriage has problems. You are not communicating. And maybe that's a good way to think about our relationship with God. Thank you for the food. Thank you for the day. Now I lay my head to rest. Amen. Thank you for getting me up in the morning. (laughs) See you at night. (laughs) You know, I've been going through this Redeemer devotional for Lent that I sent out to you by the email a few weeks back. And um, I've really been enjoying this Lent guide, actually. Um, but about a week into using this Lent guide, I, I actually discovered something. I discovered that I really liked reading the Bible passage and then reading the little devotional blurb. But I came to the realization that I just skipped over the prayer, you know? Like when I get the little prayer section going, this is how to pray out of that, I, all right, yeah, whatever, you know, and I just ended it there. And it wasn't about into the second week of Lent that I began to realize, why am I doing that? Why am I just fast-forwarding over the prayer part? And, and I realized I was just satisfied with a good thought for the day, something that just poked my mind a little, you know, something that challenged me. 
as an intellectual idea. But I realized that that prayer was actually the most important part of that devotional. Because through that prayer, I am taking these thoughts about God and turning them into conversations with God, which is what God desires. David Paulison writes this about prayer. It's hard to pray. It's hard enough for many of us to make an honest request to a friend we trust for something we truly need. But when the request gets labeled praying and the friend is termed God, things often get very tangled up. You've heard the contorted syntax, formulaic phrases, meaningless repetition, vague non-requests, pious tones of voice, an air of confusion. If you talk to your friends and family that way, they think you'd lost your mind, but you've probably talked that way to God. Yeah, I, I like the way Paulus and describing it, right? We've, we've made much of prayer that's really working against us, right? We're so worried about packaging it in the right way and saying the right phrases. And, oh, how am I supposed to pray? Like, is this what I'm supposed to say to God? And at the end of it, it becomes this ridiculous thing that just deflates us and say, I don't know how to pray. I don't, so I'm not going to. Author Paul Miller talks about camping in the Pennsylvania mountains with his children. And during that camping trip, he was walking from the campsite to, the, to their car with his kids when his 14-year-old daughter, Ashley, uh, lost the contact, contact lens, came out of her eye and fell into the floor in the woods. So immediately, Miller's reaction was to tell all the kids to stop, and he said, uh, let's pray, let's pray, so that God could help us find this contact lens. And before Miller could start the prayer, his daughter Ashley burst into tears and shouted back at him, what good does it do? I've been praying for Kim to speak, and she isn't speaking. You see, Kim is Paul's younger daughter, and she's autistic and hasn't spoken a word. And she still was unable to talk. And what Miller didn't know was that for years, his older daughter had been praying for her sister to speak one day. But she still wasn't able to speak. And after years of this frustrated prayer, his daughter Ashley had basically given up on prayer and said, what's the use? What's the point? God doesn't answer prayer. Miller writes, few of us have Ashley's courage to articulate the quiet cynicism or spiritual weariness that develops in us when heartfelt prayer goes unanswered. We keep our doubts hidden even from ourselves because we don't want to sound like bad Christians. We have a vocabulary of prayer speak, including, I'll lift you up in prayer, and I'll remember you in prayer. Many who use these phrases, including us, never get around to praying. Why? Because we don't think prayer makes much difference. The most common frustration is the activity of praying itself. We last for about 15 seconds, and then out of nowhere, the day's to-do list pops up, and our minds are off on a tangent. Instead of praying, we're doing a confused mix of wandering and worrying. Then the guilt sets in. Something must be wrong with me. Other Christians don't seem to have this trouble praying. After five minutes, we give up, saying, I'm no good at this. I might as well get some work done. 
Complicating this is the enormous confusion about what makes for good prayer. We vaguely sense that we should begin by focusing on God, not on ourselves. So when we start to pray, we try to worship. That works for a minute, but it feels contrived. Then guilt sets in. We wonder, did I worship enough? Did I really mean it? In a burst of spiritual enthusiasm, we put together a prayer list. But praying through the list gets dull and nothing seems to happen. The list gets long and cumbersome. We lose touch with many of the needs. Prayers feel like whistling in the wind. When someone is healed or helped, we wonder if it would have happened anyway. Prayer exposes how self-preoccupied we are and uncovers our doubts. It was easier on our faith not to pray. And I wonder if any of you in this room can identify with what Miller is saying. I think the truth is we can make prayer such an enormously complicated and difficult thing that in the end, the truth is, it's easier on our faith not to pray because we're left with more doubts and questions after the prayer than before we began. And I want to say we can get so mired in the rules of trying to get it right, but if there's one application that I want to make from our message today, it is simply this, to invite you into relationship with the living God Jesus Christ, by learning how to pray to him as if you are talking to a person. And don't make it any more complicated than that. Just talk to him as you would talk to a person. I want, in other words, to challenge and invite you to discover a life of continual prayer that centers around the kind of conversation that a child has with his or her parents. In other words, whatever is on your heart, whether good or bad, share it with God in that moment in prayer. Whatever your need or desire is in that moment, share it with God in prayer. Don't overthink it. Don't obsess over the form or the rules of that prayer, but talk to him as you would talk to a friend. Nothing is too big or small. Nothing is too embarrassing or shameful to bring to him in prayer. This is, I think, one of the greatest expressions of having a relationship with God. is simply talking to him like you would talk to a friend, trusting him for everything that you need each day. You know, just a quick story and we'll end here and I'll be done. Uh, as you know, this last weekend, I went to Flagstaff, and then it got to the airport. I found out that my flight, I was flying to Phoenix, getting a connection to Flagstaff. When I got to O'Hare, I found out that my flight was 45 minutes delayed. My connection was one hour long. So I got to the ticket counter. I said, I don't think I'm going to make my Flagstaff flight. Can you rebook the connection? The only connection to Flagstaff that was available was at midnight. And I had two important meetings that Friday night that I couldn't miss. So I basically resigned myself to having to rent a car in Phoenix Airport and drive it to Flagstaff for several hours in order to get there in time for those evening meetings. As I got onto the plane, it was delayed another 30 minutes. So it took off an hour and 15 minutes behind schedule. And I just came to the Lord with that request, simple request. I said, God, 
You know the situation, and you know how important these meetings are this evening. And I simply said, just show me your favor, God, please. All I ask, show, you, show me your favor. Uh, we landed, and I was sitting in the like, third to last row of the plane. I was in the way back. We landed within a few minutes of the other plane taking off. So somehow we made some time in the air, but not enough to catch this flight. And so I was thinking about talking to the stewardess, the, the, the flight attendant, and asking her if I could just make a beeline right out the door. But I realized I had already missed the flight, so I didn't even bother. So I just, for 10 minutes, I'm sorry, but there were a lot of senior citizens on that flight. So it took forever to get this flight out. But, but by then, it was already past the time that the plane was taking off. So I said, what's the point? But as I was leaving that plane, I said, God, if there's any possibility, just show me your favor. Now, I had flown number, numerous times into Phoenix to catch this flag, that flight. And if you've ever been to the Phoenix airport, I don't know why they do it like this, but your connection is always several air football fields away. I mean, you have to walk ridiculous distances to catch your connection. It happened every single time I, I flew in and out of Phoenix. I get out, and the gate that I need to connect to is literally right next to me. So I walk over there. First time this happened. Walk there, and the guy had just closed the gate. And I guess there's some FAA rule that once the gate's closed, they're not supposed to open it again. And he's just staring at me, and I'm staring at him as I'm approaching him, and he's, like, looking at me. And I just said, listen, I know the gate's closed, but I got to get on this flight. I need you to let me in. And at first, he looked like he was going to give me a hard time. And he just opened, he goes, get in. <laughs> I literally got on the plane, and the plane took off, like literally right after I landed. And everyone's staring at me, you know, as, I, as they opened up the plane for me. Now, listen, this doesn't happen to me every time, okay? <laughs> I have missed connections before. I'm not guaranteeing you that he's going to be some kind of divine Santa Claus. But what I'm describing here is simply a relationship with God that says, whatever my need, whatever my situation, I'm going to take it to the Lord because he is my friend. And in him, I put my trust. The memory verse, if I could give you one for this week, is simply this, Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Constant in prayer. Let's pray. The paradox of the narrow door, as we think about this idea of striving to enter and have a seat at the Lord's table, is that all that God desires is a relationship with Him. It's not about earning any righteousness that we can do on our part. That's the great mystery. What makes it so hard to enter the door into the kingdom of heaven is the sad truth is most of us don't want that relationship with God. The truth is we're too prideful to humble ourselves to enter into that kind of trusting relationship with Him. I got it figured out on my own, you know? Like that Sinatra song, I've, I'll do it my way. But the great invitation of our God is this that he desires to have a relationship with us. Come to me. Speak to me. Call out to me. And I will be there to be your help, to be your ever-present help 
in your times of trouble, to comfort you in your distress, to help you in your moment of need. That's what makes the door narrow. So that most of us refuse that relationship. And my sincere worry as pastor of ICC is to find that at the end of it all, you come here week after week doing a lot of churchy things, all the outward trappings of being a Christian. And yet the truth is, in your heart of hearts, you've always pushed Jesus away. You've never entered into an actual relationship with him. And I don't know what fears or hang-ups that might cause that. I don't know. But I want you to know that the Lord that we worship is one who is worthy of your trust, gentle, meek, loving, kind. And all he wants is your good in your life. And the invitation is wide open. You don't have to be good enough in order to accept this invitation. You don't have to prove anything. All you have to have is the faith and the humility enough to want it and accept this invitation extended to you. That's what I want to extend to you this morning. Maybe that describes your life. A lot of religious activity, but no relationship. Maybe what God is saying is, come to me. Come to me and speak to me. Don't just speak of me. Speak to me. I want a relationship with you. So can I just invite you to just pray for a few moments as our worship team comes to closes in a time of response. And let's come to him with that faith, that humility that says, I want you, Christ. I want to know you as a person, not just as a symbolic figurehead of this religion that I've chosen. I want to know you in a very real and intimate and personal way. Would you come to me in that way? Let's pray.